Hey guys, before we dive into this week's episode, I've got a little offer for you. This year I launched my online studio, Mindful Moment, and I'd love for you to prioritize your own well-being and come and have a free trial. You'll get unlimited 24-hour access to my growing library of meditations, mindfulness techniques, breathwork and movement sessions, yoga classes, sound healing recordings, and more. Whether you've got two minutes or a full day, and whether you want to improve your sleep, feel calmer, or let go of damaging thought patterns, there are sessions there to support you. All from the comfort of your own home on your own timetable. Go to lilysilverton.com forward slash mindful hyphen moment to start your free seven day trial today. I wouldn't work at full speed all the time. I did say a long time ago, I'm really not a workaholic. Um, I don't work just for the sake of working. Uh, and I do spend an awful lot of time in my own time. I don't know whether it's downtime. I'm interested in my brain. So when my brain goes into overdrive, I potentially find that relaxing, even though maybe it's not. Welcome to Priorities, the podcast about the things in life that really matter. I'm your host, journalist and coach Lily Silverton, and each week, along with a roster of incredible guests, I'll be exploring how priorities inform and transform our lives, sharing mindset tips, strategies, and inspiration to help you prioritize your own life. We'll be covering what we think is important and unimportant, what we'd like to work on more, and the moments that changed our priorities and lives forever. I hope you enjoy. My guest today is one of sustainable fashion's leading pioneers and thought leaders, Ursula de Castro. A true trailblazer, in 1997, Ursula founded From Somewhere, a label designing clothes made entirely from disregarded materials. In 2006, she co-founded the British Fashion Council's groundbreaking initiative, Aesthetica, which was London Fashion Week's showcase for labels designing sustainably. And in 2013, to mark the tragic Rana Plaza factory collapse in Dhaka, Bangladesh, she co-founded Fashion Revolution, which has since become a huge worldwide campaign, which continues to raise awareness of the social and environmental catastrophes in our global fashion supply chains. Ursula's first book, Loved Clothes Last, came out last month. Welcome, Ursula. Thank you. (laughs) It's so lovely to have you here. It's so lovely to be here and to reconnect with you after such a long time. Oh, likewise. How's your day been so far, Ursula? It's been sunny. It's sunny in London. So when when it's sunny outside, it's sunny inside and sunny all over. So good so far. (laughs) Makes a huge difference. Are you a routine kind of person? Do you like to have a routine? No, not at all. Not at all. I am completely unroutined. The only periods I managed to have routine was when I was rearing children because I knew that they needed it. But I myself, not at all. (laughs) What happens when you try and have a routine? Um, Oh, I don't even bother to try. I don't like it. Um, I I really like... um, you know, I guess there are things that become routinery, like I have coffee every morning, but I don't have coffee at a certain time, nor do I have a particular ritual apart from making it. I'm just not that kind of person. I like things to be much more spontaneous. I don't like planning so much. I don't, I really hate making lists. Um, so I just take the, you know, the day and the life as in the same way as they come. Mm, really fluid approach which actually ties into what you've said about priorities because when I asked you to list your priorities you said I couldn't possibly do that 
yeah. um, that would be incredibly limiting. So talk to me, talk to me about that. I want to know what's important to you, but we're not going to limit you by any specific three. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, uh, as I was saying, I don't like lists. Um, and I don't like priorities in the sense that um, there are so many in my life, you know, whether it's you know, the good of the world, the good of my children, my cat, my wardrobe, my, you know, my everything. And I don't tend to have, um, I don't live by regiments, nor do I live by dogmas. And so um, I feel that priorities can shift throughout the day. You know, some days my priorities might be very big and linked with my job and my profession. But other days they're not. They're very small and um, have a totally different flavor. And yet I value them both. And I value the freedom to be able to take my life spontaneously and uncharted and unplanned and the freedom to change my mind, the freedom to discover something new, the freedom to change my road along my journey. I mean, these are things I value hugely. And I know I've been, I've lived my life in an unconventional way and I thoroughly intend to continue doing so. <laughs> Quite rightly. <laughs> Where do you think, because I think a lot of people listening and myself included would be almost quite envious of that approach to life, of feeling very free at all times. Have you always been like that? Yeah. I mean, uh, I am what used to be known as, you know, dyspraxic, dyslexic. Now, joy of language is neurodivergent, which I very, very identify with. And and so programming, logic, don't sit very well with my brain. My brain is programmed to be discombobulated. And within that discombobulation, I've grown everything that I have done. So my brand from somewhere is absolutely 100% the product of a neurodivergent brain. You know, putting little bits together of fabrics that don't necessarily want to be together, weren't designed to be together. The freedom to go from being a designer to finding myself as a kind of a campaigner, that is kind of part of the same, uh, not having fixed for myself um, a journey, nor an expectation of what that journey should look like. And I have absolutely 100% always been like this. I mean, I was happily ensconced in school in Rome until the day that I decided that I wanted to leave and come to London, which I did. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's, it's, how, it's how things work for me. You grew up in Rome. I grew up in between Rome and Venice. I was born in Rome, but my family is very, very much Venetian. And so I was brought up in between the two very much more in Rome because I went to school in Rome. But all of my holidays and family time was around, you know, around Venice and and, and there, around there. Let's talk a little bit about your work and about sustainability, because it's obviously at the core of everything you do. Yes. So how did you, how did your interest in sustainability start? Because it started way before it was quote unquote fashionable. Yeah, well, it wasn't actually an, I mean, I I would say that I was born with um, interest in sustainability in the sense that, you know, sustainability is what keeps us alive. And ever since I was a child, I was interested in history, interested in evolution, interested in common sense. You know, these are, these are traits that I have had 
for as long as I can remember. And it they gave me somehow uh, uh, a clear judgment on what I saw happening around me. But my approach has always been 100% creative. So I started with clothes. I started with making clothes and, and making clothes from clothes that already existed or fabrics that already existed. But again, that was in 1997 with my brand from somewhere that very much felt like a labor of of love and creativity, not because there was a need. I became aware of the need as I moved along, as I started realizing the waste that the fashion industry produced. And that, in turn, um, informed a whole different way of thinking as to what I could do for this waste. So originally it was my creativity that was of service. Um, and then it became my passion, my capacity to speak, my capacity to be articulate, and above all, my capacity to convince people. And, you know, those all were put to the service of this industry and how this industry has an obligation to turn and become sustainable. But again, you know, I do start from the point of view that it isn't sustainability that it's the trend, it's excess that is the trend. It's what we are witnessing right now that has completely lost control. And I guess having been in this industry long enough, um, I've had you know an opportunity to, to try and, and at least be a part of steering it back. Do you feel like things are changing? I do now. I do now. Not enough. Um, not fast enough and not rigorously enough and not deeply enough. But um, the change is happening on a side of the industry which isn't the mainstream. You know, the change is really, really happening with the smaller, the emerging brands. Those brands that are nimble enough to make the profound changes that need to be made in order to become sustainable at this day and age. But I think that the primary change that we're seeing is in younger generations and in particular after a year of COVID and Black Lives Matter. There is so much more awareness of the impact of the fashion industry, not just environmental, but social. There is so much more aware of the fact that this is an industry that was designed to exploit both people and planets. There is finally a very clear, almost geographical understanding that the way that the fashion industry operates is similar, if not the same, to the way that imperialism and colonialism operated in, in, in other countries. These were these felt like complicated issues until quite recently, and now it feels that they're on the surface and somehow um much more understandable that is a massive change yeah i agree with you completely it's the human impact that i think is yeah. being really truly understood we've known each other for a long time and worked together um when i was at yeah. and you were at aesthetica when you started aesthetica yeah and i think of that now of fashion weeks i obviously haven't done them for quite a few years but i think of how you guys were the outliers so you know there was the regular shows going on and then you had Aesthetica on the side where by now it feels so much more integrated and as you say yeah much more you don't really hear of any brilliant prominent new young brands who aren't considering sustainability on all levels in one way or another yeah I mean I I was 
really delighted to. I was a judge for New Gen. What was it? Two years ago, last year. It it um, and I mentored a lot of the British fan, uh, British Fashion Council cohort. And yes, there are. I mean, there are designers who really cannot take it upon themselves to switch all of their fabrics to sustainable or, you know, um, in suddenly, you know, upcycle. And But if they're not approaching that, they will be approaching another element. So that might be about inclusivity. It might be about gender neutrality. It might be about, you know, looking at um, another aspect, which nevertheless leads to either a sustainable or an ethical approach. And it is completely integrated. And I would say inevitably so, because something so fresh and strong and new as actually wanting to save the planet, which was considered worthy. And I have to say it with that tone of voice, but, you know, until quite recently, it has now, you know, it's clear now that this is the only avant-garde that we can consider because without it, there's not an avant <laughs> to look forward to. You know, we won't be able to move. We won't continue to evolve unless we take certain measures. And these measures are moral and and uh, environmental. So, yeah, absolutely. Do you find it tiring what you do? I always think when I talk to activists, didn't hear about burnout in terms of banging a drum over and over again. How do you feel about it when you're talking to people and you're talking about such huge global issues as well as huge global supply chains that, as you say, are incredibly hard to change? It's odd. It's an odd question. Somebody asked me the same in a podcast and, and she said, oh, I'm exhausted. And how exhausted, exhausted are you? And my reaction was to say, yes, me too. But it was more out of sympathy. No, actually, I don't find it tiring. Uh, I work an awful lot. But I have to say that at this point in time, I am doing something which I know I'm doing well. And I'm doing it exactly as I wish to do it. You see, I am very, very privileged in many ways because I've managed to cut a space for myself without ever being paid by the brands. So I actually can say exactly what I want. And that is a really, you know, amazing situation to be in. Hmm. There aren't many that can say I'm actually, you know, I'm, I'm not being paid by anyone in here. So this conversation that I'm having is on my terms, and that is invigorating rather than tiring. I guess if I were sort of, you know, confronting pillars and frustrations and, you know, it probably would be different. But I am very lucky that I've constructed a position for myself which reflects the person that I am and the person that I want to be. Obviously, this has taken an enormous amount of time. I am a very old woman. I am a granny. I am 54. <laughs> so, you know, but that also is something that isn't spoken of. You know, the joy of actually being an older woman in this kind of space, doing what the fuck she wants, which is what I'm doing. <laughs> and um, so, yes, I do get tired from a physical point of view because I do find myself overworking, overspeaking, overthinking. But at the end of the day, it's exactly where I want to be. So it's a funny tired because it's also it's the same difference between excited and nervous. So I'm I'm always, you know, perpetually in between being tired but being very invigorated to do more. 
Hmm. I guess when you're doing something that you love and that makes so much sense, then it's very rewarding, even if it is tiring. Very rewarding. Absolutely very rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of an obvious point, but... Uh, how do you feel about sort of the Instagram sustainability movement, social media sustainability, lots of younger people coming up and creating accounts dedicated to it obviously wasn't something that was around when you started Aesthetica or even Fashion Revolution? No, not really. Um, so I've got a double, you know, double, double feeling here in the sense that obviously um, I do follow search, know, discover, and I have the utmost respect for many of them. Although I do say that the conversation has become overtly simplistic at the minute. Mm. And um, a lot of the people who are opening, you know, sustainability accounts and and all of that have not worked in the fashion industry. Mm. And, you know, I am talking about fashion from the point of view of the fashion industry. I'm not talking about um, fashion from exclusively at 100% for, uh, you know, consumers or, you know, and I do believe that an understanding of the industry is imperative uh, in order to be able to really influence um, changes. Absolutely. There are a lot of very complicated nuances. Yeah, I mean, you know, fashion revolution is, is very much about accuracy when we speak. And at the minute, there is this huge, you know, anti-fast fashion movement that you'd think that luxury is not culpable Mm -hmm. simply because it's never mentioned. I mean, that makes me furious. Mm -hmm. The fact that we are putting culpability very firmly on one sector of the industry and somehow letting the other one that is just as culpable, 100% scot-free, which they are using totally to to their own benefit. Mm. There's so many social connotations with that as well. Oh, totally. But, you know, it's this... This type of fashion sort of can get away with it. Absolutely, but it isn't just that. It's the fact that, you know, the origins of almost everything is from that sector of the industry. Yeah. So, you know, the the, the 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 real true exploitation, the real true, uh, you know, colonialism, racism within this, this industry, uh, it, it's linked to the whole of the industry, not one sector of the industry. Um, you know, the, the, the luxury sector jumped at the globalization of fashion just as fast as everybody else did. And, you know, they have exploited resources and people just as much as everybody else does. So, you know, it's it's this um, without, you know, in, you know, in my case, I am, you know, equally livid with the cheap fashion sector that refuses to slow down to acknowledge, you know, their impact on on the planet and 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 on 17 year olds who are literally you know we've affected their culture so drastically that they really do want to buy three outfits per day so it, it's the entirety of the fashion industry that i condemn and i do use the word condemn um for, for several reasons and so i think that sometimes uh, when you don't have a robust understanding of how the industry operates, literally from the seed of the, you know, 
non-sustainable or organic cotton, whichever way, you know, but from far up that far all the way to the end of life of the garment, uh, which is, you know, we are also in the fashion supply chain. I do feel that many of the conversations have dulled up. Nevertheless, we do need the conversations in the first place. So I just wish that people, um, together with information, were to exhort others to take time and actually find out in depth, uh, you know, what really interests them, what's their entry point topic, and then study that and do it with, you know, master your opinion. And the only way to master your opinions is to have a very solid background of knowledge behind. Without that, an opinion is just a flighty, slightly irrelevant <laughs> thing. And and I think that this is this is not a message that I see often um, in this new wave of of sustainability conversations on social media that you mentioned before. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it applies across all areas as well. Yes. In that anyone can be an expert. I see it with, you know, meditation of people who have been meditating for a couple of months and then they're teaching on Instagram or... Exactly. Exactly that. There is this sense of... mm -hmm. It's it's the negation of skills. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's part of a way bigger problem because we berate others for negating skills to people, but then... You know, it, it's a, I guess there's cultural appropriation. This, I guess, potentially we could be skills appropriation, but there's a huge amount of that. And I mean, you know, in fashion, it started, I remember, you know, Dan, do you remember the celebrity collections? We're still plagued by them, I guess, but it's, um, it is just something that we, that we do, you know. My work centres on helping people better navigate this challenging modern world, so I'm very excited that this episode of Priorities is sponsored by Anatomy, a London-based modern apothecary that provides natural solutions to support the stresses of daily life. Anatomy's range of vitamins, health supplements and therapeutic essential oils have been developed with the help of sports scientists, nutritionists and aromacologists, and they combine the best of nature and science to create products that support your essential health and well-being. I've been using their defense and immune support vitamins all winter, and I love their sleep and recovery oils. I put a little of their blue chamomile insomnia blend on my wrists and the soles of my feet before I get into bed, and always find it helps settle my body and mind. Anatomy are kindly offering any Priorities listener 20% off their first order with the code LILY20. Check them out on www.anatomy.co. I thought something else while you were talking about um, luxury versus fast fashion as well, that really the way in which the luxury market operates now, because of all the changes, it operates a little bit closer to a fast fashion model anyway, with pre-collections and so on and so forth. So I don't know enough about the history right now. It's something I've been meaning to look up. But in my mind, from my memory, it was fashion, it was luxury fashion that started the multiple seasons and that was in order to counteract the quick drops of the fast fashion so in that sense as well you know who who started the madness yes i know that that, that cheap fashion started the the hyper production and 
uber quantities that we are seeing right now. They were capable of that and they certainly exploited that. But, you know, luxury fashion is pretty voluminous too, if we consider all of the accessories, if we consider all of the various diffusion collections. I mean, at one point, brands had one, if not two, diffusion collections, which were produced potentially in the same factories or very close by or by people with similar skills to the ones that make, I guess, the better quality fast fashion. But, you know, it it is, again, it's this, we can't split them. One is the product of the other. You know, luxury fashion could have had a very different approach when they moved to China. You know, they could have gone saying, okay, we'll bring our knowledge, we'll bring our know-how, we'll bring our techniques, but we'll also bring the dignity that we've been imparting on, on our workers. In Europe, there were moments where there were pockets of real dignity, and, and I guess made in Italy, made in France, represent that. Mm. But of course, you know, the minute that they could go Eastern Europe or, or somewhere else, they did in order to pay less. So it was very, very, very deliberate. This exploitation was 100% deliberate. It didn't happen. It was designed to happen. And as a result, the entirety of the fashion industry is culpable of very deliberately exploiting people and planet for the sake of their own profits, which were then not equally distributed throughout the supply chain. People tend to think that if you pay 1,500 euros for a bag, that the, the, the makers of that bag will be paid more fairly. They won't. Mm. Talk to us about your book, Ursula, that came out last month. My book? Yeah. So my book is called Loved Clothes Last. It, it came out last week. It's published by Penguin Life. It's a huge, massive dream come true. I never, ever thought that I could write. I mean, I know that I can speak. And I'd written, you know, maybe a handful of blogs before. But I was picked up by my agent on Instagram and I very nearly didn't reply to her DM. And she's from a really amazing literary agency in, in the UK. And she wrote me uh, on Instagram saying that she wanted to find somebody to do a book on mending. And I'm actually really bad at mending, although, of course, all of my clothes are rigorously mended, either by myself or others. Of course, I have access to that information. So I I just replied saying, look, I'm not good enough at mending. There are people and books way, way better than anything I could ever do. I mean, you know, how could anybody do a book on mending after Katharina Radabau? I don't quite know. But I did say that rather than doing a how to mend, that I would have been brilliant at doing a why to mend and my book is a combination of the two so it's got silly little things you know like illustrations on darning and but the majority of the book is about mending the system and then of course mending my way I mean I'm primarily as we said at the beginning of the conversation I am a creative soul so I think creatively and I do love my clothes excessively and I do want to make them last, and I have a very strong aesthetic sense, having been a designer. So all of those little bits and pieces, how I let clothes break, how I mend holes using vintage brooches, um, you know, all of the things that I actually do are also there. And then there are also classic mending um, ideas from, from others. But it's a cheap paperback. Um, lovely, I really... So pleased with the illustrations and the graphics. 
and it's it's available for all to buy. And I'm I'm super proud and I'm really moved by the reaction that it has generated already. That's so brilliant. You've got such a wealth of knowledge. So I couldn't think of a better person to write it. My my copy's waiting at the local bookshop, which is only open two days a week at the moment from from lockdown, but I'll get it tomorrow. I'm looking forward to reading. Ooh, I'm excited that you'll see it. Of course. What other books do you recommend to people? Or or people? Oh, it's odd because I'm... And a little bit more. So I read a lot. Mm. Well, I've read recently... Uh, one of my favourite books on the subject was written by um, Cassia Sinclair, and it's called The Golden Thread. And it's very much a story of the textile industry. That was very illuminating for me. Um, in the sense that it's it's just beautifully written and it's an amazing story and it reconnects you with an industry that you don't seldom remember as having been this innovative, this female, this huge on our lives. We forget that. We tend to think that fashion is frivolous. It's not. It's a gigantic, massive industry that has been present um, forever, (laughs) pretty much the same amount of time as us. You know, the, the 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 idea of dressing up went from a necessity to something else pretty quickly, I think. Mm. So this book was was very um, life-changing for me. Uh, super, super interesting. I don't read that many books on, on fashion, to be honest. I tend to read literature more. But another one of my absolute all-time favourites is The How to Be a Craftivist by Sarah Corbett. It's so sweet and brilliant. Again, really reconnecting you with what we can do, but why? Um, Another book that I really, really loved when it came out, which was probably the very first one, was Green is the New Black Mm. by Tamsin Blanchard. That one still contains things in me that, you know, for me that are, you know, incredibly valuable considering how old, you know, what a massive precursor it was. Obviously, Mending Matters by Katerina Radabal when it comes to uh, mending. I mean, there's just no other book. And her second one is coming out soon. And I mean, you know, those are Bibles if you want to mend. And there's another brilliant one that came out recently um, from Kate Sekulis, which is called Visible Mend. And that's also really, really cool. And then I quite like one by Francis Corner, which I can't remember what it's called. Oh, God, what a nightmare. Why Fashion Matters, that's it, from Professor Francis Corner. came out quite a few years ago. That, too, is also, um, it was very inspiring for me. Brilliant. That's a good list. I'll link to all of those in the show notes so that if anyone, hopefully, lots of people will be interested and can have a... Safia Minni is also a renowned um, author in this field, but she's written too many. I couldn't possibly mention all of them. (laughs) So... Ursula, has there ever been a time in your life where your what's important to you or your priorities have shifted in an instant? Yeah, when I gave birth. I can't think of, of you know, I think most women that have given birth, that's in that moment you know that you no longer you love yourself more than ever, you know, you, it, it's... Every time, every time. And each time they shift according to the character of the child, which, again, is something you get an inkling straight away when you meet them. 
So yeah, four times my my priorities have shifted shifted in an instant. Otherwise, I'd say it takes probably a little longer than an instant for them to shift. Mm. How old are you when you had your first child? Eighteen. Did you feel young Just, at the time? That's a really interesting question. I don't think I've ever felt young. <laughs> I've always felt. Um, it's a really interesting question. I don't think I've ever felt young. I always felt quite invested with responsibility and I always felt that I could hold my own with adults or children alike. And my desire to have a child was also something to do with almost wanting to stay a child in order to play with this child to stay a child. So, I don't know. <laughs> You've always struck me as someone who's so young and so full of energy. Yeah, in that sense, I'm full of energy, but I always feel like I'm a very old soul. Mm. I've, I've in, I have this really obsessive interest with history since I was very, very young. And that is, is something that is, is so predominant in my life, this looking back and that for some reason I identify with 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 centuries, not not just decades. <laughs> <laughs> Staying very grounded in the past. Yes, it? I think so. Mm. Do you feel like you find it easy to say no to things, to prioritise stuff and to say no to things you don't want to do? No, and that is a huge issue. I think a lot of people suffer from the saying yes to too many things. Again, in my case, it's not so much uh, a question of priority. Uh, my tendency would be to say yes, to, to say yes to everybody, to be heard by everybody, to speak to everybody. And the main problem I have is that I don't have, I was trying to explain before, in my neurodivergence, I don't understand the length of time or the space of time, you know, or, or, or the, the, the size of a, you know, of a space. Mm. So I tend to say yes, brilliant, amazing, and then realize, oops, <laughs> I am, you know, I don't have enough time. So I'm getting a little bit better now. But my hyper availability is 100% uh, part of the person that I am. And the way that fashion revolution was built and my extreme reaction to an industry where no one is available for you because it's always too exclusive. So you need to reach that level before you're considered. I hate that. You know, I detest not looking at people from exactly my same height, eye to eye. I don't like looking up just as I don't like looking down. And so I have needed to be, uh, to say yes. I'm very proud that I say yes as often as I possibly can. I will say yes. And it's not about to change. And I don't want it to change. It's just about um you know, occasionally protecting myself within this availability and and an understanding that you know, like right now, for instance, it's the demand on me is is bigger than it was before, and so I'm slightly struggling to keep a balance. Are you good at relaxing? Yeah, I think I do. I mean, I'm not a meditator. I I can't do that, uh, but I'm very good at relaxing if I dance. I'm very good at relaxing when I read. Um, I am very good at relaxing when I chat to my kids. So it's not 
you know, there's more that I should do. I mean, I definitely should be using relaxation more in terms of, uh, you know, within physical exercise, for instance, which I don't really do anywhere near enough. But yes, no, I don't feel that I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm super hyper. I'm also, um, I suffer from a autoimmune, I used to anyway, it's fine now, but it's called Graves' disease, which affects my thyroid and makes my thyroid be hyperactive. So I am, again, hyper by nature and have been always. But I do think I do in it within within the spectrum of what I can do. Yes, I do think that I'm okay at relaxing. I think that's really the key, isn't it? That we were talking about earlier about not feeling burnt out by things and having that capacity to say yes to so much. As long as you feel like your downtime is truly downtime and you're able to switch off, then it's not as if you are working at full speed all the time. No, I wouldn't work at full speed all the time. I did say a long time ago, I'm really not a workaholic. Um, I don't work just for the sake of working. Uh, and I do spend an awful lot of time in my own time. I don't know whether it's downtime. I'm interested in my brain. So when my brain goes into overdrive, I potentially find that relaxing, even though maybe it's not. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think... Basically, I think that when you get to my age, something happens and you are in a relationship with your body whereby you don't need to necessarily ask permission and vice versa. So I know what it needs. It knows what I need. You know, my, my mind and my emotions will never be um, stagnant or um, stationary. Sorry, I didn't mean stagnant. I meant stationary. My, my mind and my emotions are hyperactive, and that's just the way that it is. I think my body knows that by now. But there are ways of balancing the two. Do you have any advice for someone who feels like their mind is stationary? Like they feel a bit Read. Stuck? Well, for me, it's books. You know, I, I don't get it with films or TV as much. I know that... But for some, that can be, a, you know, uh, an inspiration. For me, it, it's, I don't know whether it's generational, but it's books and art. And if my mind is stuck, the only thing that will unstick it is the power of others. And I am very, very, very curious. I just couldn't be more curious. And there is so much power for me in in learning learning what other people are doing learning what they're writing what they're thinking so for me it's a brilliant un, unstuck I know that for other people it's more like a, a walk in the park or being with nature and that does have a profound effect on me as well especially if I'm in the mountains which is would be my favorite you know my favorite place for I guess, you know, some people do forest bathing. I'm very much of a mountain bather. Mm. But it is definitely um, about learning and, and reading and finding out and discovering new things. That's that's the one that does it for me. That's mm. why I love interviewing people, why I love doing this podcast. But just I'm sure, yeah. In general, it's yeah. different <laughs> answers you get to these kinds of questions. I spoke with Rankin, you know, the photographer last week. Yeah. Um, and his was all about boredom, you know, how he wants to be, he wants to be bored. 
and how important that is for his creativity and for oh I completely get that I totally understand that I love I so I've on one way I've never been bored not once in my life but at the same time what people consider boredom which I know is not boredom for me I, I do understand how bloody important it is yeah mm. Okay, Ursula, that was fantastic. It was so great to talk to you. You've definitely inspired me to get my sewing machine out of the cupboard. <laughs> Brilliant. Do some mending. I am the least competent sewer in the world. Well, there you go. You see, in the book, I'm always making the point that if you're not a competent sewer, find somebody who's way better than you, as I did. I'm a terrible. But, it, you know, also um, advocating to have mending in, in every supermarket and fast fashion store. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Just to make it easier for everyone. Absolutely. Um, and we'll look out for your book. I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, and do link out also with Fashion Revolution Week, which is going to be at the end of April, as usual. Um, I think 19th to the 24th of April. So if as many people as possible can join and take part, it would be brilliant. Fantastic. I'll link to that and hopefully I'll see some listeners there. Ursula, thank you so much for your time. It was brilliant to talk to you as always. Thank you so much, Lily. Lovely, lovely, lovely talking to you too. Take care. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Priorities, I'd really appreciate it if you could make it your priority today to hit subscribe and also rate and review, as this helps other people find it. Need a little incentive? Every month, I offer one free six-month membership to my online studio, Mindful Moment. All you have to do is hit subscribe, rate, review the podcast, and then email a screenshot of your review to podcast at lilysilverton.com for a chance to win. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.